section twelve of a history of our own times volume four by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter fifty two the leap in the dark part three a meeting of the liberal party was held at mr gladstone's house to decide upon the course which should be taken mr gladstone had a device of his own to meet the difficulty his idea was that a line should be drawn below which houses should not be raided in any form but that in every case where a house was raided the occupier should be entitled to a vote whether he or his landlord paid the rates mr gladstone was anxious that the very poorest occupiers should at once be relieved of the obligation to pay rates and not allowed to give a vote he and mr bright as well were haunted by the fear of carrying the vote down too low in the social scale and introducing to the franchise that class which mr bright described as the residuum of the constituency now it must be remembered that the liberal party if they acted together could command a majority they were therefore in a position to compel mr disraeli to adopt the principle recommended by mr gladstone but a remarkable difference of opinion suddenly sprang up after the meeting at mr gladstone's house a group made up principally of the more advanced liberals began to doubt the advantage of mr gladstone's proposed low water line they thought it would be better to let all householders in boroughs have the vote without distinction they held a meeting of their own in the tea-room of the house of commons and they resolved to inform mr gladstone that they could not support his amendment they were known from that time forth as the tea-room party and they came in for nearly as much condemnation as if they had been concerned in a new gunpowder plot by their secession mr gladstone's scheme was defeated and it was made certain that there were not to be two classes of householders the raided and the unraided in the boroughs a bold attempt was made then to get rid of the compounding system altogether and at length to the surprise of all parties the government yielded to the pressure they undertook to abolish the system absolutely to have the name of every occupier put on the rate-book to give every occupier the vote and in a word to establish household suffrage pure and simple in the borough constituencies the tea-room party had conquered both ways they had prevailed against mr gladstone and prevailed over mr disraeli many hard words as we have said were flung at the tea-room party mr bright denounced them in severe and scornful language and asked what could be done in parliamentary politics if every man was to pursue his own little game a costermonger and donkey mr bright said would take a week to travel from here to london he was addressing a meeting in birmingham and yet by running athwart the london and northwestern line they might bring to total destruction a great express train thus he went on to say very small men who during their whole political lives have not advanced the question of reform by one hair's breadth or by one moment in time can at a critical hour like this throw themselves athwart the objects of a great party and mar it may be a great measure that ought to affect the interests of the country beneficially for all time the tea-room party ventured no doubt upon a serious 
parliamentary responsibility when they thus struck out a little policy for themselves independently of their leaders yet it can hardly be questioned now that they were in the right as regards their principle it was a great advantage to get rid of all complications and all various graduations of franchise and come at once to the intelligible point of household suffrage as mr gladstone and mr bright had themselves admitted and argued at various stages of the debates it was decidedly objectionable to have the question of franchise mixed up with varying parochial arrangements of any kind and left to depend on the views of a vestry here and a vestry there nor were the tea-room party mutineers who by their conduct had enabled the enemy to triumph on the contrary they were at the worst only adventurous volunteers who at some risk had won a more decided victory over the enemy than their regular chiefs once ventured to think possible certain of them were perhaps a little inclined to give themselves airs because of the risk they had run and the success they had won but it is only justice to some of them at least to say that they had acted from deliberate calculation as well as from a sense of duty they were convinced that the government if pressed would give in to anything rather than allow the bill to be defeated and they thought they saw a sudden and secure opportunity for establishing the borough franchise at once on the sound and simple basis of household suffrage the struggle now was practically over the bill had become from a sham a reality from unmeaning complication it had grown into straightforward clearness it accomplished a great purpose by establishing a sound principle it had gone much farther in the way of pure democracy than mr bright had ever proposed or probably ever desired to go during the discussions mr mill introduced an amendment to admit women who were registered occupiers as well as men to the franchise in other words to make the qualification one of occupation only without reference to sex the majority of the house were at first disposed to regard this proposition as something merely droll and to deal with it only in the spirit of pleasantry and with facetious commentary but the debate proved a very interesting grave and able discussion and it was the opening of a momentous chapter of political controversy mr mill got seventy-three members to follow him into the lobby and although one hundred and ninety-six voted the other way he was probably well content with the result of the debate he also raised the question of the representation of minorities but he did not press it to any positive test it had however a certain distinct triumph before the completion of the measure when the bill went up to the house of lords lord cairns moved an amendment to the effect that in places returning three members no elector should vote for more than two this amendment was carried although mr disraeli had announced beforehand that the government thought such an arrangement would be erroneous in principle and pernicious in practice and although it had been strongly opposed by mr gladstone and mr bright the new principle it will be seen acknowledges the propriety of securing a certain proportion of representation to minorities in a constituency with three representatives each elector votes for only two 
obviously then the third is the representative of a minority it does not by any means follow however that he is always the representative of a minority differing in political opinions from the majority in some of the constituencies to which the bill gave three members it so happens that there is a majority of one way of thinking large enough to secure the return of all three members there are electors enough of one party to secure a majority to the two candidates who are especially popular and yet to spare as many votes as will enable them to carry a third candidate also thus the new principle does not in practice always accomplish the object for which it was intended indeed it is plain that in the very instances in which the advocates of the representation of minorities would most desire to secure it those of places where the minority had before no chance of obtaining any expression of their views they would still have little chance under the new arrangement and would be most easily overborne by combination discipline and skill on the part of the majority the new arrangement was of moment however as the first recognition of a principle which may possibly yet have a fuller development and which if it does can hardly fail to have a serious effect on the present system of government by party one or two clauses of some importance not bearing on the general question of reform were introduced it was established that parliament need not dissolve on the death of the sovereign and that members holding places of profit from the crown need not vacate their seats on the acceptance of another office on their merely passing from one department to another this was a reasonable and judicious alteration it is of great importance that when a member of parliament joins an administration he should give his constituents an opportunity of saying whether they are content to be represented by a member of the government but when they have answered that question in the affirmative it can hardly be necessary to undergo the cost and trouble of a new election if their representative happens to be transferred from one office to another a constituency may have good reason for refusing to elect a member of the administration but they can hardly have any good reason for rejecting a secretary for the colonies whom they were willing to retain as their representative while he was secretary for india we are glad however that the change in the law was not made a little sooner history could ill have spared sir john packington's speech at his re-election for droitwich the reform bill passed through its final stage on august fifteenth eighteen sixty seven we may summarize its results thus concisely it enfranchised in boroughs all male householders rated for the relief of the poor and all lodgers resident for one year and paying not less than ten pounds a year rent and in counties persons of property of the clear annual value of five pounds and occupiers of lands or tenements paying twelve pounds a year it disenfranchised certain small boroughs and reduced the representation of other constituencies it created several new constituencies among those the borough of chelsea and the borough of hackney it gave a third member to manchester liverpool birmingham and leeds it gave a representative to the university of london it enacted that where there were to be three representatives each elector should vote for only two candidates and that in the city of london which has four members each elector should only vote for three 
the irish and scotch reform bills were put off for another year we may however anticipate a little and dispose of the scotch and irish bills at once the more especially as both but especially the irish bill proved to be very trivial and unsatisfactory the scotch bill gave scotland a borough franchise the same as that of england and a county franchise based either on five pounds clear annual value of property or an occupation of four pounds a year the government proposed at first to make the county occupation franchise the same as that in england all qualifications as to rating for the poor was however struck out of the bill by amendments the rating systems of scotland being unlike those of england the government then put in fourteen pounds as the equivalent of the english occupiers twelve pounds rating franchise some new seats were given to scotland which the government at first proposed to get by increasing the number of members of the house of commons but which they were forced by amendments to obtain by the disenfranchisement of some small english boroughs the irish bill is hardly worth mentioning it left the county franchise as it was twelve pounds reduced the borough franchise from eight pounds to four pounds and did nothing in the way of redistribution while the english reform bill was passing through its several stages the government went deliberately out of their way to make themselves again ridiculous with regard to the public meetings in hyde park the reform league convened a public meeting to be held in the park on may sixth mr walpole on may first issued a proclamation intended to prevent the meeting and warning all persons not to attend it the league took legal advice found that their meeting would not be contrary to law and accordingly issued a counter-proclamation asserting their right and declaring that the meeting would be held in order to maintain it the government found out a little too late that the league had strict law on their side the law gave to the crown control over the parks and the right of prosecuting trespassers of any kind but it gave the administration no power to anticipate trespass from the holding of a public meeting and to prohibit it in advance the meeting was held it was watched by a large body of police and soldiers but it passed over very quietly and indeed to curious spectators looking for excitement seemed a very humdrum sort of affair mr walpole the home secretary who had long been growing weary of the thankless troubles of his office at a time of such excitement and who was not strong enough to face the difficulties of the hour resigned his post mr walpole retained however his seat in the cabinet he will sit on these benches said mr disraeli in announcing to the house of commons his colleague's resignation of the home office and although not a minister of the crown he will be one of her majesty's responsible advisers he was a man highly esteemed by all parties a man of high principle and of amiable character but he was not equal to the occasion when any difficulty arose and he contrived to put himself almost invariably in the wrong when dealing with the reform league he exerted his authority at a wrong time and in a wrong way and he generally withdrew from his wrong position in somewhat too penitent and humble an attitude he strained too far the authority of his place and he did not hold high enough its dignity he was succeeded in office by mr gathorne hardy who left the poor law board to become home secretary the reform bill then was passed the leap in the dark was taken 
thus did the prime minister lord derby describe the policy of himself and his colleagues the phrase has become historical and its authorship is invariably ascribed to lord derby it was in fact lord cranbourne who first used it during the debates in the house of commons he had taunted the government with taking a leap in the dark lord derby adopted the expression and admitted it to be a just description of the movement which he and his ministry had made it is impossible to deny that the government acted sagaciously in settling the question so promptly and so decisively in agreeing to almost anything rather than postpone the settlement of the controversy even for another year but one is still lost in wonder at the boldness the audacity with which the conservative government threw away in succession every principle which they had just been proclaiming essential to conservatism and put on radicalism as a garment on a memorable occasion mr disraeli said that peel caught the whigs bathing and walked away with their clothes now he himself had ventured on a still less scrupulous act of spoliation he helped to turn the whigs out of their clothes in order that he might get into the garments nothing could have been more surprising than the courage with which he undertook the series of transformations unless perhaps the elaborate simplicity with which toward the end he represented himself as one who was acting in the truest spirit of consistency few could help being impressed or at least imposed upon by the calm earnestness of his declarations juvenal's greek deceived the very eyesight of the spectators by the cleverness of his personation mr disraeli was almost equally successful the success was not perhaps likely to conduce to an exalted political morality the one thing however which most people were thinking of in the autumn of eighteen sixty seven was that the reform question was settled at last and for a long time nothing more would be heard of the unenfranchised millions and the noble working man on the one hand of the swart mechanic's bloody thumbs and the reign of anarchy on the other mr lowe is entitled to the last word of the controversy the working man the majority the people who live in the small houses are enfranchised we must now mr lowe said at least educate our new masters End of section 12.